Here we go. You're listening to Law and Gospel on this October the 13th, a Wednesday. I'm Pastor Tom Baker, and we're going to be taking a look at a problem that pastors have in taking, well, regard of the three lessons for each Sunday. We are in a three-year lectionary, which means for three years we have three different lessons each Sunday. And for the 19th Sunday after Pentecost, one lesson was from Genesis chapter 2. Another one was from Hebrews chapter 2. And the third one was from Mark chapter 10. And as I looked at each one, I found intriguing passages that one could easily do a whole sermon on. So what I'm going to do is not take any one particular passage, but we're going to look at each of the three passages to make the point. Because, you see, we read these lessons in the worship service, and I can only imagine that after reading some parts of it, people have questions. And so I thought, well, this would be a good opportunity to answer their questions. For example, in Genesis 2, beginning with verse 18, this is after the creation of Adam, the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, in the minds of many people, a helper is someone inferior to the one you're helping. For example, a king may have a helper, an ambassador. Well, an ambassador is obviously doesn't have the authority of the king, but rules under the authority of the king. So one can say that the ambassador is inferior to the king. And that's how a lot of people understood this text from Genesis, that the woman that God made was really inferior to the man and was to be primarily his helper. But the text doesn't say that. It says, I will make him a helper fit for him. For example, if you take a look at that word fit, we find out that Joshua was the leader behind Moses, and he was fit for Moses. Then in the New Testament, Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit, another helper that was to be sent, and he would be fit for the disciples and the people. So who's going to say that the helper, the Holy Spirit, is inferior to human beings? Of course not. A helper fit for him means that God is going to make a woman. And Adam had given names to every beast of the field, to the livestock, to the birds of the heavens. And then it does say in verse 20, 
But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So, what did God do? Did he choose a monkey? I actually was taught that at the seminary, that God chose two monkeys and called one Adam and one Eve. I mean, those folks joined with ELCA who have gone off the rails now. But at any rate, there was no monkey, no animal fit for Adam. So verse 21 of chapter 2 of Genesis, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up his place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now, what Adam then says really destroys evolution. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, in evolution, the way a human being supposedly would be made would be from a female monkey who then gave birth to what became a human being, which is really quite ridiculous because there is no way that that kind of evolution could take place or has ever taken place. It can't be tested in a laboratory. It can't be renewed. We can't check it out. There's no evidence for it at all. It's just the wild imagination of scientists who try to figure out where did man come from and contradicts most of the Bible because until Adam and Eve sinned, there was no sin in the world, no evil. Lions did not eat other animals. Man did not experience hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes in the Garden of Eden. But when Adam and Eve fell into sin, not only was all humanity corrupted, but even the universe kind of fell apart. And therefore, sin made a great difference even in the world. But the point I really want to make is a woman is equal to a man. A woman can come to the Lord's Supper. A woman can pray the Lord's Prayer. A woman can teach the children as they grow up the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now, there are differences between men and women because it is obvious that men have an ability to be able to work 60 hours a week without much of a problem. Whereas recently, a study was done to show that in one month, 70,000 women in the United States left work in order to go home and be with their children and take raising them up as a serious vocation. And you can understand that. Woman, a mother gets up in the morning and her six-year-old is not feeling well. So how does she feel dropping him off at school 
when he's not feeling well. She's thinking about it all day long. At any rate, a woman is equal to a man. And as Adam says, she was fit because she was bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. All right. Then I was reading Mark chapter 10, where the Pharisees come up to Jesus. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus says Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. But that was because of the hardness of your heart. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Then Jesus quotes Genesis chapter 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So I'm pretty sure most of the listeners in a Christian congregation understand that. They need to remember, though, that the Pharisees and leaders of Judaism, when they read what Moses allowed about writing a certificate of divorce and sending the wife away, they took it to mean for any reason at all. They could send the wife away because she wasn't good looking anymore, or she didn't know how to cook, or maybe she argued with a husband or whatever. Now, we get to then the part that I think people are wondering about. Verse 10 of Mark 10. In the house, now that meant that the Pharisees had left, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, there's no doubt there are churches where a divorce has taken place and one of the partners has married someone else. Does that mean that abortion is, I'm sorry, not abortion. Does that mean that therefore adultery is taking place? No. Scripture interprets scripture. In the Bible, there are proper reasons for a divorce. The main one is adultery. Let's say one of the partners commits adultery with another person. That is grounds for a divorce. Another reason would be desertion. In my congregation, I had for many years... I had a number of families that had no father figure. He had either left or there had not been a marriage, whatever the situation. The fact of the matter was that the women had to do the job of raising the children, and they did a very good job in bringing the children to church, to Sunday school, 
to vacation Bible school, to confirmation, and reading the Bible to them, and teaching at home. So the husband had left, and therefore he, there was no head of the household, but the woman would take that over. So what Jesus is saying, if someone divorces his wife to marry another, he's committing adultery because that is not a proper reason for biblical divorce. And the same with the wife. If she marries another after divorcing her husband, because she says something like, well, we don't love each other anymore, and just forgets about the vows that she had made, that they would be together in one flesh until both of them or one of them had died. And that freed the woman or the man, the living one, to remarry. So that was a passage I thought that if you just take it by itself, there can be a lot of problem with that. So we've looked at Adam with a woman who is a helper fit for him, also referred to in regard to Joshua to Moses. And in John 16, verse 13, Jesus talks about another helper, the Holy Spirit, and he is fit for us. And we've taken a look at what is Jesus talking about? That if you marry someone that committing adultery, that's in light of scripture, interpreting scripture, when you leave your spouse for an unbiblical reason, and then you marry, you are committing adultery. All right. The other passage that I found, well, this needs to be explained, is the Hebrews 2 passage. The first verse of Hebrews 2 ought to be a sign on every church we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. That's really, really important because the gospel is spread not by our deeds. We can be a very, very good person. We might be even as good as some atheists, but nobody comes to faith because they see what a wonderful person we are. They come to faith because they hear the message of what a wonderful person Jesus is. By becoming a human being, he was able to die. As God, he could not have died. But as a human being, he therefore did not make use of his divine attributes and was hungry, was tired and was able to die. So that's what we heard from the Bible. There's no evidence for any of that except what the Bible says. And therefore, as verse two says, since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, how shall we escape if we neglect 
such a great salvation. Now, in speaking about the reliable message of angels, obviously, the writer to the Hebrews is not talking about message from the demons or from the devil, like that message that the devil gave to Eve. Oh, God doesn't want you to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because then you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And behind every sin is unbelief and the desire to become your own God. So Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because they did not believe the promises from God and they thought thereby they would become God. Well, they found out that that wasn't going to happen. When they sin, they realize their sin and try to hide from God. But of course, God is everywhere. But the text that I find interesting is in verse 6 of Hebrews 2. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? Now, there's a distinction there between man and the son of man. In fact, in regard to the son of man, the verse 7 goes on, you made him for a little while lower than the angel. You have crowned him with both glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, unless you understand Christian theology and the creeds, that can be very confusing to you. If the Son of Man now has everything in subjection under his feet, how can he be said to be lower than the angels? Theology is the art of making distinctions. And one of the best distinctions that is found in the Bible is the distinction between justification and sanctification. Justification is that point where you are declared righteous in God's sight. Like Abraham was, he believed the promise of God, God declared him righteous, not because of what Abraham did, but because of what he believed. That's what the whole Reformation was about. Salvation is through faith, not by works. Now, when we talk about distinctions, justification is that time when you become a Christian, you become a member of the family of God, normally in baptism, where you receive both the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's in Acts chapter 2, Peter's sermon. But then how is Jesus a little lower than the angels. That's another distinction of theology, what we refer to as between humiliation and exaltation. Now, when you hear the word humiliation, you get the idea that the guy is embarrassed. That's sometimes how we use 
Oh, look how humiliated he is because he was arrested for robbing the bank. That's being embarrassed. But the term humiliation comes from the word humble. And in regard to the Son of Man, who is Jesus, his humiliation is when he humbled himself. Now, what is the evidence that he humbled himself? It is found particularly in the Apostles' Creed, beginning with conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Now that's his state of humiliation. God could not have suffered at all, but as a human being, he was willing to take on suffering, and he was doing the suffering that should have come to us. So what is the state of exaltation? Well, just like humiliation can be thought of as stairs going down, exaltation can be regarded as stairs going up, being restored to the right hand of God. And the first stair going up sounds like it's going down, the descent into hell. But we're not talking about his descent into hell on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're talking about his descent into hell that's found in the Bible when he goes to hell to proclaim victory against the sinful people who died at the time of Noah's flood. That's really quite different. And so that's part of his exaltation because it occurs after he has risen from the dead, he's resurrected from the dead, and he ascends into heaven, and he sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to return to judge the quick and the dead. And the word quick there is referring to the living. So Jesus' exaltation is his ascension, his return to God the Father. He is at the right hand of God the Father. And as a right-hand man, he is not inferior. He has been restored to all his attributes, some of which he did not make use of when he was a human being. But now he is omniscient, which means he knows all things. He did not know all things as a human being. He himself talks about the day of the last day in his state of humiliation. He did not know, but God the Father knew. And we talk about his humiliation where he became hungry, where he suffered pain, where he died, which never happens to God in a state of exaltation. He lives forever. But when Jesus ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of God, he now has fully been restored to all his divine attributes. 
as I said, he's omniscient, knows all things. He's omnipresent, which means he's everywhere. And he's also omnipotent, which means he's all-powerful. He holds the whole world in his hands. So now we understand what verse 7 of Hebrews 2 says. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. In other words, uh, the angels did not have the necessity of feeling suffering or having to die. So in that sense, in his state of humiliation, he appeared to be lower than the angels. But the verse goes on that God the Father crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now the Bible makes very clear in the following verse, verse 9, that we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for who for a little while was made lower than the angels, but now he is crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because of suffering of his death, so that the grace of God might become death for everyone. So, very important to understand that Jesus died so that we will never really die in the sense of being separated from God and being in hell unless we're an unbeliever. As Jesus said at the raising of Lazarus, he said to Martha that though we live, we shall never die. And that is meaning that we will not experience the pangs of hell. But at the moment of our death, our spirit is sent to be with Jesus. So we never really die in the sense that our bodies will be stored in heaven for an eternity. So you can understand why in some passages in the three-year readings, you can actually give four or five sermons, and it's pretty easy to understand how you can go three years without having to preach on the same item. I gave you an example of readings from the 19th Sunday after Pentecost. Tomorrow, Rumination Thursday, and we'll be talking about a subject. God bless Listen you. To Law and Gospel each weekday morning at 9.30 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law and Gospel, please make your check payable to Concordia Mission Society and mail it to Tom Baker, P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri, 63132. To give online, visit lawandgospel101.com or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962.
Views and opinions expressed on Worldwide KFUO may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. If you'd like to comment on programs or topics heard on Worldwide KFUO, write us at KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can also leave a question or comment on our comment line at 314-996-1542. We are the messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO.